welcome to Growing, a podcast about birth, babies, and beyond. I'm your host, Beth. I'm a midwife, a business owner, and a mum. If you're anything like me, you find yourself wearing many hats, and this can be fun and hard and everything in between. So I'm here to offer support and solidarity for whatever season of growth you find yourself in. Let's go. Today's episode of Growing is brought to you by Tommy Tippy. Introducing the new Tommy Tippy Made For Me Wearable Breast Pump. Powered by you, the newest Tommy Tippy breast pump is wearable and cord-free. It slips comfortably into your bra, meaning you can pump totally hands-free whenever, wherever. It can be controlled using the Tommy Tippy app and is the only breast pump that mimics baby's natural sucking motion using the smart, constant comfort technology. The breast pump has a clever nipple alignment light to help you pump in the most comfortable position day or night, and the milk collector bottles are compatible with the Tommy Tippy's award-winning Closer to Nature Teats, so you can feed your baby in a few simple steps. The Made For Me wearable breast pump is available now from tommytippy.com.au and baby bunting stores. Hello and welcome back to Growing. Today I have the wonderful Em on the podcast. Welcome Em. Thank you, Beth. Did you want to introduce yourself and just share a little bit about who you are and who's in your family, where you're living, that kind of thing? Sure. Um, well, firstly, thank you very much for having me. I, I love your work and your podcast and I feel very honoured to be here with you. So my family is uh, growing. <laughs> We've got most recently we've had a, a second baby boy called Sandy I've got an older boy, Henry, who is nearly three, and my husband, Jamie, um, and myself. And we are living at the moment in Brisbane, which is where I grew up. But I had um, we spent about 10 years living in Melbourne um, before re- relocating back to Brisbane when Henry was about 15 months old after um, surviving Melbourne in um, lockdowns and in COVID. <laughs> we decided to move back for um, a bit more support, which I know you know a bit about too. Yeah, that's actually, we connected when we were both living in Melbourne, didn't we? And I think Henry was a little bit older than Poppy, but you had very generously been sharing a little bit about your motherhood story and we connected on Instagram and it was just really, really nice. I actually think I was in your inbox a few times being like, what do I do about this? My child (laughs) won't sleep. Do you have any tips? (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) I don't think I would have been very helpful. Although I I can say Henry is a very good sleeper now. So (laughs) often though, it's just the solidarity. It's just the ability to say to someone like, this is hard, help me. And even if they're like, yeah, I don't know. It's just kind of nice. Yeah. Together. Yeah, absolutely. Do you mind taking us back a little bit and sharing about your lockdown pregnancy and some of the events that followed after that? Yeah, sure. So yes, I when we fell pregnant with Henry, it was the very, it would have been, you know, a few weeks really before COVID hit. And so it was, you know, a totally unknown world, what we were going into. We just um, moved back to Melbourne after a couple of years living in Sydney and kind of settled down thinking we knew what was going to be ahead of us having a, you know, a first child. And then of course the world completely 
changed um, and particularly in Melbourne. So spent most of the pregnancy and then most of the first kind of year of Henry's life in lockdown, which I think in hindsight, I can kind of look back and and realize was probably a, a really contributing factor to me being diagnosed with postnatal depression when Henry was about, I think about five months old, which is coincidentally kind of how old my second child is at the moment. And yeah, so I, I think I had a pretty tough pregnancy and, and that, yeah, the first um, few months of Henry's life because of lockdown, because of being away from family, exactly what you just said, not really having people around you physically to say what you're going through is normal and hard and, you know, it does get different or easier or it changes all the time and I just didn't really know what I was doing. Henry was a shocking sleeper at that stage as well and so I think sleep deprivation on top of things never really helps. So, yeah, we had a, a rough kind of first, particularly maybe six months of Henry's life. I spent a few weeks in a mother-baby unit in Melbourne, which I think was a really big kind of change probably in, in the course of my motherhood. I think it really opened my eyes to realizing that I wasn't the only one that was finding it hard and there was plenty of other people out there going through tough things and it's pretty normal to find that shift into motherhood really challenging. And so, yeah, I had a pretty interesting kind of experience going into motherhood the first time probably particularly because of that kind of lockdown period. But it also meant that I, I think I was pretty nervous about um, planning to have a second baby and, and not really knowing what that was going to be like for me. But definitely, yeah, it was, it was a big part of our reason to decide to move back to Brisbane when Henry was about 15 months old, be around my family. I've got siblings and parents in Brisbane who've all, you know, my two brothers have both got kids here so we're all kind of going through it together as well and my mum and dad live you know 10 minutes down the road and we spend a lot of time with them now so definitely it's been a um it was a big kind of decision to move away from Melbourne where we you know had jobs and and amazing lifestyle but was definitely the right call for us and, and certainly if we were thinking about having another child I think it was kind of um, in the context of wanting to make sure that we had lots of support structures in place particularly for me, I think going into that, again, knowing what I'd been through the first time. Yeah. Yeah. I can relate to a lot of that. And you've shared so generously about your experience that led up to the mother baby unit and then the decision to go in. And I think I remember you sharing, and it was really valuable, this conversation that you had with your husband where he was sort of like, I didn't know it was that bad. And you were like, well, I didn't really know either. And you kind of just had to have this frank discussion. And I think the reason I found it so valuable was because I think when we think about mother baby units and what they're there for and the women who use those services, we're often, I think something that comes up is that lingering idea of PND is looks a certain way or postnatal anxiety will manifest in it, you know, certain behaviors, but actually it's often women who are just going through the motions, but they're just going deeper and deeper into this really dark and difficult place. And it's not necessarily expressed externally to the world. And it, you don't have to look a certain way or feel a certain way. You don't have to be ranting, raving down the street to go to these services. That's not what they're there for. And if you are, that's okay. You know, if that's how your emotions are manifesting, but I loved hearing you say that because I think that that would be very relatable for 
lots of couples who are journeying through and actually having to turn to each other and say, I'm not okay. I know I might have be coming off that I'm okay some of the time, but I'm really not. And I really need to get help. So I've always just thought it was really amazing the way that you shared your story. Oh, thank you. I, I definitely, I think that's something I've been able to do a bit better in hindsight as well is realize how hard I was finding it. And I think because I didn't have anything to compare it to, you know, the first time I remember, I was just saying this to someone the other day, I remember walking out into the street and looking at people and thinking, what is wrong with all of you? Why would you ever do this to yourself? Like, why did, why did you have children? And why would you ever go back and have more than one? And I thought it was this kind of like secret that everyone was keeping that actually it was awful and everyone was having an awful time, but we just didn't talk about it. And so I think it was definitely a big, a huge kind of relief to learn that A, it doesn't have to feel that hard all the time but also it is okay if it is hard and there's lots of things out there that you can do to help yourself and your family kind of get through that yeah absolutely so talk to us about the decision to go again and grow your family we it it wasn't exactly a, a proper decision actually we knew that we would have another one at some point and then we yeah didn't use protection at one point and then of course got pregnant the first time that that happened not really expecting it I had stopped feeding uh, a couple of months before I think and I had I think I just started to get like a regular period again so I kind of had some idea but didn't expect it to to happen Um, so it was a bit of a shock and but something that we kind of immediately you know did the maths and realized that Henry would be about two years and four months or something when the second baby was born. And so we kind of immediately said, well, I think that's a nice age gap and this should work out well. Of course, you you really have no idea what you're in for second time around. And because I was pretty nervous about what I was going to feel like again, I was probably, yeah, a bit, a bit more nervous than I was the first time. I was quite sick in this pregnancy as well, which I didn't really have the first time. I had a little bit of nausea early on with Henry, but this pregnancy from before I even took a pregnancy test, I was feeling nauseous. And then I was really violently ill until about 14 or 15 weeks, which was really, really rough. Like I absolutely, you know, I know you've talked about this a bit when you're unwell and it's at the stage of your pregnancy where you're not telling people or you don't feel like you can tell people yet. That is one of the hardest things to do. And having a toddler and being really sick was just so, so rough. So I was very grateful that we were in Brisbane and that we had all this extra support this time around so we could kind of palm Henry off whenever I really couldn't leave the bed much. So that was a bit rough. And then of course it was still COVID times as well. So I at one point got COVID at the same time as being really ill with the pregnancy and ended up in hospital for a few days because I was just so dehydrated, which again was one of those experiences for me where I was just so glad that I ended up getting help because I kind of was languishing at home for days and got to a point where Jamie, my husband, was really worried about me because I wasn't really making any sense. And I think in hindsight, I was just so dehydrated that I started um, hallucinating a bit and ended up getting admitted to hospital for three days because I was yeah so unwell and it was only when I was in hospital that I kind of realized when the OB was really talking to me that I actually was quite sick and it was okay to ask for help when you're really 
vomiting, you know, 20 times a day and (laughs) it's okay to get some support and having some IV fluids really, really helps. So, yeah, again, it's one of those life experiences for me where I think I wish I'd kind of asked for help a little bit earlier than I did. I think though it's so layered, isn't it? Because conversations and care around severe pregnancy sickness are only really, they're quite recent. And I think that as women, while the care is catching up, which is amazing, we're still unlearning this conditioning that pregnancy, A, should be kept a secret for the first little while. So we are silenced in our suffering. And B, that it's just, you know, it's just pregnancy. You should be able to cope with it. And we put these crazy expectations on ourselves to function as normal. So yeah, you're not the first person, myself included, who can look back with a bit more clarity and go like, that's not normal. Probably shouldn't Mm. have pushed myself to Mm. resume normal activities and think that I could do that while Mm. feeling that way. And I'm glad you had someone in the hospital system advocate for you and just say like, no, no, you're you're in Mm. the right place. You need Mm. some help. Well, and to be honest, it was a part of our decision in having a second baby, we decided early, well, 12 months before that we would increase our um, private health and make sure that we had obstetric cover because I really wanted to have a doctor that I knew throughout the whole pregnancy this time. It was one of the the challenges that I faced in, in my first pregnancy, probably mostly due to COVID in hindsight, but I went publicly and never really had any face-to-face continuity of care. Well, I didn't have any continuity of care and never had much face-to-face. And I think that was something that kind of um, led me to feeling anxious during the pregnancy and then um, deciding second time around that we wanted to have that continuity of care and, and went privately. And it really did, it was an amazing kind of difference for me having a doctor that I felt like I could call and say, is this normal or what do you think? And he was the one that said, no, you need to be in hospital and you need to be here for three days before I'm going to let you go home and go back to your family and, you know, live life again. And um, it was something that, yeah, absolutely kind of made me feel a little bit better about it. But I have so many thoughts about what you were just saying before, particularly given the most recent experience I've had, we'll get into, but the difference in medical care people seem to give or approach pregnancy and and women and postpartum women, it feels very, very different than other medical issues. And it is really, I think it must be a really long held societal belief that because it is normal and natural to be pregnant and have a baby, that you should be able to just do it normally and naturally and and kind of put up with the challenging side effects of that. Mm. And when we get into it later on when I was a a patient of a hospital for a completely different reason I felt very much more cared for and nurtured than I was as a postpartum laboring woman and a postpartum woman as well it's very interesting to me it is fascinating and it like I even think back to when I was a student and as a student you just have to sort of shadow particularly in your early years of learning you sort of just shadow other midwives Mm. on the postnatal ward in particular. And I always think back to some of the things that I sort of heard and probably absorbed to a level until I got out on my own. And I remember the relief of graduating and thinking, now I can just do what I want and like close the door and just treat the women how I want to treat them. But there was definitely a sense of um, get on with it. 
like yeah. a frustration if they couldn't feed their babies and, oh, she hasn't mobilized out of bed yet. You know, she needs to get up and have a shower and just sort of this. And I'm not saying that this is all midwives. Absolutely not. I've obviously worked <laughs> lots of different settings. And um, I think there has been over the last decade, certainly a shift towards coming back to our roots as midwives and working with women and really showing them the respect and care. But I think somewhere along the line, it did get lost and it, it sort of took on this really yeah, a bit rough and ready. And then the flow on effect has been that women are kind of conditioned to believe that we should just be able to get on with it. And yeah, okay. You put your feet up for a few days after you have a baby, but then your partner goes back to work. Your job is to get on with life with the baby and the support kind of falls away at, you know, four or six weeks later. I mean, we could talk about this all day, right? It's like, it's so complex and big, but it's fascinating that you have recently gone through to such different experiences and that the more care you received was not after having a baby. Mm, yeah. And it was only in hindsight that I kind of realized that as well. I was visiting my sister um, who'd just had a baby and she was talking about, she had somehow injured her back in the labor and really couldn't get out of bed and was in lots of pain. And she was saying that she felt like the staff would come in and kind of really be saying to her, get up and get about. And she was saying, actually, I have a really sore back, so could you actually just pass the baby to me instead of me having to get up and get him out of the, the bassinet? And she was saying she felt like they were a bit like, oh, come on, you know, tick, tick. And I was, it was only in having that conversation with her that I was thinking, that is so true that for me, like it did feel a little bit like that in hospital after having a baby. Yeah. Anyway, we could talk mm. about it forever. <laughs> Yeah. And I also think that's why there's been a real cultural shift towards like we're having so many more conversations about postpartum. And I think women are really becoming attuned to what other women need. And there's more of a shift back to community care. Like we're all cooking for each other. I know for me, having, even with my experience as a midwife, becoming a mum taught me so much about how I want to care for my friends, both physically and emotionally when they become mothers because of what I lacked. And part yep. of that was just COVID. Part of that was being the first friend in my circle yeah. to have a baby. But yeah, it's beautiful to see those more services that, or, or more not services, but yeah, just friends looking after friends and cooking for each other and filling freezers and learning more about how we can come back to this like village mentality and less of like you go to hospital, you tick it off and you come home and get on with life mm. kind of thing. We won't go too far into um, your first birth because mm. um, I know that you shared that and perhaps I'll put a link to that story in the show notes. But talk us through preparing to give birth the second time in light of what you'd been through the first time. You can give kind of a brief synopsis if you need to. Yeah, just as a quick recap, I had a very probably typical first birth um, in hindsight that you'd be very familiar with, birth of just a... Um, I was very overdue. I got induced and it was a very, very long um, and arduous birth that ended in an epidural and uh, vacuum delivery. Um, and then a couple of days in um, special care for Henry. So I was pretty keen second time around to try and avoid something similar. And I, as I kind of got closer and closer to my due date and then over my due date again, I started to realize that I think my body just likes to hold on to babies for a long time. Um, and I think if, you know, we weren't in a kind of hospital environment, I think my body would definitely kind of go to 42 weeks or beyond kind of naturally. I definitely felt both times I ended up getting induced at 10 days over and 
I don't think I was quite there yet physically. Second time around is definitely very different um, though. So I got to about 10 days over and um, had a chat with my OB who was wonderful and very supportive of me kind of wanting to have a, a different approach to birth this time. And we yeah, kind of got to that point where I was really getting pretty over it. I A bit of a random thing, and I will just include it in case it ever happens to any other mums, when I was, I think I was 41 weeks exactly, we'd been to the hospital for a checkup and then we went home and decided to go for a walk just to see if, you know, I was trying to walk every day, of course. It was also Brisbane in the middle of February and it was horrendous, horrendously hot. I mean, um, we decided to go for a walk and when we were walking, I said to my husband, I feel a bit dizzy. Do you think you know, that's weird. And we just kind of laughed about it and thought, you know, I'm 41 weeks pregnant. It's really hot. It's probably pretty normal. Went to bed that night and and then in the morning woke up feeling more dizzy. And basically as the day went on, got worse and worse and started being quite ill and really dizzy. So we ended up going back to the hospital and tried to kind of walk into the pregnancy assessment unit and they kind of looked at me and realized that I couldn't really walk and got taken in. And long story short, I had a completely out of the blue, never experienced this before and hopefully never again, bout of vertigo. Oh. So for two days, I couldn't stand up or walk or do anything without vomiting. And I still, the, the, the doctor and the hospital kind of said it's just bad luck and bad timing and completely unrelated to being pregnant. So I still have no idea where it came from or, or why it happened. But I had yeah a few days where I was just really, really violently ill. And luckily, it, the doctor kind of said to me, look, it might be like this for a week. It might be like this for longer. Um, hopefully it just gets better and you know you can start to feel better. And I was terrified that I was going to have to, well, that I was going to go into labor when I was so ill that I couldn't even stand up and I, I kept thinking what are we going to do in this situation and I actually said to the doctor at that point could you do a c-section for me because I can't fathom trying to push a baby out while I feel this ill and he was very calm and relaxed and kind of said well just see how you go over the next few days and basically he was saying no I'm not going to do that unless <laughs> unless you're so ill that you can't he was very confident that I would get better and luckily I did in two or three days it just kind of slowly went away so I, I only raised that because it was so I was so ill and it was so acute for this short period of time that I just felt like this is the worst possible timing I'm 41 weeks pregnant this baby is going to come at some point you know what am I going to do if I have to be this ill and luckily yeah it, it got a bit better so by that point I maybe yeah it must have been about 10 days I went and saw the OB again, 10 days over, I went and saw the OB again and we agreed that I would just get induced. I think at that point I was kind of like, okay, I'm done with this. I can't risk any other weird things happening. You'd had enough going on. I cannot believe that. You would have just felt so frightened of what now? What do I do? And it just, yeah, it was just bringing back bad feelings from the last time that I just started to think to myself, well, this is going to be bad. This whole birth experience again is going to be bad and it's going to start a cascade of you know, actual interventions in the birth that I didn't want, but also a cascade of everything else that happened to me last time and, and how am I going to 
manage and how am I going to deal with that? And fortunately, you know, I feel really um, happy that I can say that it ended up being really positive. So I did end up getting induced again and in the same way that I had last time. So I think you'll say this is right, that my cervix was still quite closed and so they wanted to do the gel. Yeah. So I came in at night, they put the gel in and overnight I started to get some contractions or what I assumed were contractions, this kind of yeah, cramping every now and then. And I was kind of like sleeping on and off again. And then as it got closer to the morning, maybe about four o'clock, it was enough that I was kind of quite uncomfortable. And I asked my husband to come back and kind of hang out with me so that we could just, I could be a bit distracted by someone else instead of just lying there, trying not to think about it, but thinking about it. So he came back and then we we just relaxed until about seven o'clock in the morning when they said, okay, let's go down to the rooms, uh, down to the birth suite. We will break your waters, put the drip in and kind of go from there. So we got down to the birth suite and I had been having these feelings all night, but I really couldn't tell. It was so mild in comparison to my memory of contractions from the last induced labor that I was sure that it wasn't really much at all. But the doctor came in and he said, well, we'll break your waters, see what happens, see how you go for a little bit of time after that. Um, and then depending on what's happening, we'll, we'll put the drip in and, and go from there. And I was really hopeful to avoid the drip if I could, because that is what in my first birth really, I think it was a, a, a huge change when they put the drip in and I it was in a lot of pain for a long period of time. And it was um, yeah just bad, bad memories for me. So he broke my waters and when he broke my waters, he said, oh, you're about six centimetres dilated, which the night before I'd been zero when they, well, very little when they um, had put the gel in. So I was really, that I think immediately made me think, oh, okay, well, those things, those feelings I was having all night were obviously doing something. And I think it immediately kind of changed my mindset thinking, oh, well, maybe this is something that I, my body can kind of do and yeah. I'll be okay. And that was very correct because he broke my waters and then he left to go and see some patients, left the hospital to go to his rooms and see some patients. And I very quickly, very quickly ramped up so that I was kind of standing next to the bed, having really regular contractions that were getting more and more um, painful. I was definitely kind of breathing through them and then kind of groaning through them and then I had the TENS machine on and I was really working. I I kind of, I think I finally understood what it meant when people say like working with the pain or working with the contractions. Like I I really felt like they were doing something and that I was helping them do that by really like groaning into it and really like standing there and stamping my feet and doing all those things. Like I almost feel like I could feel the baby moving down as I was kind of breathing down and groaning down. So it was a really... I can say this in hindsight, a really amazing feeling of knowing that, you know, stuff was happening. And I think my only comparison was the first birth where I, for a long time, I and I'm sure this is pretty normal for a first birth when the body doesn't really know what it's doing either, that there was just a, not a lot happening for a long period of time. And then I ended up having the epidural, which was great because it removed the pain, but it also meant that I couldn't feel anything that was happening in, yeah. in my body. So this was very different in that you could feel everything 
And at one point I kind of remember saying to the midwife who was there, I need to go to the toilet. I need to do a poo. And she said, okay, Emily, I think you should get up onto the bed. And I said to her, no, 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 I know women say this when the baby's coming, but like, this is not the baby coming. This is, I actually need to go to the toilet. Yeah. And she said, okay, like get up on the bed. And then I heard her in the background calling the doctor. Yeah. And I kind of vaguely was thinking, I think that must mean that there's something going on. But I still thought that I just needed to do a poo and I was very concerned as to why she wanted me to get on the bed because it wasn't going to end well in my opinion <laughs> what was going to happen. Um, so I was on all fours on the bed and then, yeah, it kind of occurred to me that the baby was coming and there wasn't really much I could do other than let him come. Yeah. Um, it was very clear that he was just deciding that that was the time that he was coming. So the long story short is that they broke my waters at 8, 29 and he was born at 9 27 or something so just less than an hour between yeah the start of when the doctor said I was six centimeters dilated to him just completely um coming out it was the full experience that I've heard people talk about where I really didn't do anything my body just completely took over and ejected him from my body and we have this amazing photo that my husband took of him having just come out and my face is just like shock because and Jamie talks about it all the time that he just said like I didn't look like I had just had a baby because it just seemed like so weird that you know an hour ago I was sitting on the bed talking to the doctor and planning to have a baby sometime that day and then he was here in my arms just out of my body and it was just I really understood the elation that people talk about like I think I think I had the full experience of my hormones doing their thing, um, my body doing what it needed to do and, and this huge rush and adrenaline and absolutely full of adoration for this tiny thing, yeah. which was really special for me because I had the complete opposite feeling last time after this you know mammoth labour that went for days, finally the baby coming out and being placed on my chest and I just felt completely numb and that he was, I didn't recognize this kind of alien thing that was on me. This felt completely different. He looked exactly the same as Henry did, but he was there and I had felt, you know, every inch of him come out and I'd pulled him up onto my chest and, you know, all these things that people talk about. So to have that experience this time for me was just, I've heard people say, you know, it felt like a redemption birth. It really felt like it couldn't have been more opposite, even though it, they both started with an induction, which I was so scared of the second time. So it was it was really um, an amazing feeling. Oh, that's incredible! It sounds like a really healing experience. And yeah, as you were speaking, that feeling that you get that elation is the only word for it. It's mm-hmm. like you're levitating mm. with this mix of like joy and love and it takes Mm. you a little while to come back to your body and be like oh okay Mm. this is and for me it was just this it was such an extreme dichotomy between the last time where I had felt like such a failure that my body hadn't done what it was supposed to do and that it had ended in me feeling so numb and removed from the situation to being so proud of what had happened and so present and so you know acutely aware of every single thing that was going on 
whilst also just being completely shrouded in those feelings of elation and everything felt so complex and so simple at the same time. It was just incredibly, yeah, I've heard people talk about it so much in my life and listen to so many birth stories and to then go through it yourself. I understand why it's something that we like to talk about and why we want to, and why people feel so proud and look back so fondly. And it's something that I definitely think of now in hard times I think back to that feeling that I had because I don't think anything will ever relate to how proud I felt or how amazed I felt at what the body can do. Oh, I've got goosebumps. That's incredible. (laughs) And just a real testament to the journey that you've been on. Um, And like you say, it was kicked off in the same manner. Like, you know, you were induced both times, but you had a completely different experience. And yeah, do you feel like that sense of elation and that sort of hormonal high how did that serve you in the early postpartum so differently and in such a positive way just all the little things I mean we everything was different in a more positive way for example um, Sandy didn't have to go into special care which Henry did which meant that feeding was a little bit harder the first time but also I think the first time when you start feeding I've talked about this as well. I had flat nipples and I didn't realize I had flat nipples until after I had Henry and after he pulled them out. So now second time around, feeding was a lot easier. My milk came in a lot quicker. Like I think really that first, Sandy also cluster fed the very first night. So he was born at nine o'clock in the morning and that night he cluster fed all night, whereas Henry didn't do that until like day five or day six. Mm. And so I think my milk didn't really come in until a bit later and by then I was already like so exhausted whereas Sandy I feel like I had one night where I had you know not great sleep because I was um having contractions but then that day I was just yeah the adrenaline was just obviously coursing through me and I really had that one night where he cluster fed but then after that he slept really well for the you know first eight weeks of his life really so I was a, a lot better rested everything uh, the recovery for me was so different also I had an episiotomy the first time so and I think for me having had the epidural the first time it felt like my body was a bit more sluggish for a few days kind of getting things back having the catheter in I had trouble weighing the first time for a few days and this time it was so amazing that you know a couple of hours later my parents brought Henry up to the hospital and I could stand up and hug them and hug him and you know have them sitting next to me in bed and you know I felt so fresh and amazing um so that that physically felt amazing and then I think because physically I felt pretty good mentally I felt a lot better too and I think there is so much to be said for second time parenting you just are so much more confident and I knew not to worry about things that I worried about a lot the first time you know the first time I was so obsessed with how many grams you know he'd put on or, or lost or, um, each day and this time I, I really trusted that my body would provide the right amount of milk that he needed and he would get and, and you know he would cluster feed when he needed to bring more in and that's hard at the time but it also doesn't last forever and yeah. you kind of go along with it he also and I have a lot to say well, I have a lot of thoughts about this as well from the second he was born was a karma baby and I, I I can't help but feel like the 
traumatic birth for Henry and his first few weeks and then our first few months together has really impacted him as a baby. He was quite unsettled and difficult to, you know, feed well and, and all of that kind of stuff. So this experience from the second he was born has been very calm and relaxed and, and happy. So it's just meant that that whole journey has been actually very enjoyable. Whereas yeah, the first, particularly the first six weeks for Henry, I found really challenging. And this time with Sandy, it just felt like the first six weeks flew by and we were in this actual newborn bliss. It was something that people always talked about, the newborn bubble, and I didn't understand it because for us the first time it didn't feel like what felt like an awful bubble to be in like yeah. it's just us and this screaming baby yeah it's a hard thing to um talk about because on the one hand I, I was really fortunate that I despite lockdown and everything I, I feel like my first six weeks was a genuine bubble and it's mm. like I always kind of joke like I'm at my best when I'm freshly postpartum because I was someone that did have that elation from the yep. moment Poppy was out and it really took a few months for it to wear off. And then I kind of had a bit of a crash, but I think you've hit something quite true there that you are either someone who does find it quite blissful and it is a bubble in every sense of the word, or you are someone who is like, what on earth are people talking about that? This is nice, that this is beautiful. Like, please stop telling me to soak it in. This is hell. I haven't slept, you know, I'm bleeding and all of that stuff. So I think both both experiences need to be spoken about and like we need to shine a light on both and say there's not a right or a wrong, but there's just you can experience this differently. And some factors are within your control, like the support that you put into place, the education that you do. And then there are factors that are outside of your control that you've touched on, like the events of your birth, a Mm. global pandemic, for example. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, moving you forward a little bit, I know that you faced some health complications in the weeks or months after Sandy's birth. Mm. How did you notice that and what happened there? So when I was pregnant, as I mentioned earlier, I was really sick early on in the pregnancy. So I was taking on Dancitron a lot at the start, which made me really constipated. And then but even when I stopped taking it, I kind of remained quite constipated throughout the pregnancy. And so a couple of times I had mentioned that to my care providers, but I was also low in iron. So kind of taking some iron supplements, pregnancy, it was very much kind of like, this is probably just a pregnancy thing and just keep an eye on it, you know, after you're pregnant and kind of see what happens. So In the weeks after I had Sandy, I probably particularly noticed that my bowel function was just a little bit different, which is probably the the key thing. And what I kind of want to say to everyone is that you should just be aware of what's kind of normal for you. And if things feel different, then that's when you should kind of get help. So luckily my, my OB had said to me, look, if things continue to be a little bit different after your I'm no longer pregnant, then we'll look into it. And at about, I think I was about four weeks postpartum, I went to my GP. So I was going to wait till my six week normal checkup with the OB, but something in me, and I'm, I don't know what it was, some kind of instinct made me go to the GP a little bit earlier. 
and I said to the GP, look, I'm, you know, I'm only four weeks postpartum. I'm still bleeding. I'm, I'm still, you know, feeding 20 times a day and nothing's really normal, but my bowels have been unusual, a little bit constipated sometimes, a little bit um, diarrhea other times. And I had some blood and some mucus in my stool sometimes. And luckily she was really onto it and she straight away said okay well you need a referral to a gastroenterologist and you need to just check this out which at the time I was a little bit like this is annoying because I'm so newly postpartum there's a lot going on I have a toddler and a baby and you know I'm already leaning on my family for a lot of support at the moment and I felt bad asking for more help but essentially um, I went in to have a colonoscopy it must have been six weeks postpartum and the the thought was before I went in because I was I was 33 that I probably had a bowel IBD like an inflammatory bowel disease issue and that I'd probably just take some medication and it would probably be fine but you know better do the colonoscopy the gastroenterologist actually said we better do the colonoscopy to rule out the big C and we kind of laughed about it at the time and so I woke up from the colonoscopy and waited around for an hour or so, really expecting that the, the doctor would just come over and say, yeah, it looks like Crohn's or, or some other IBD, you know, take the medication and, and we'll just keep in touch. And he took a long time to come around. And in hindsight, I realized it was because they were waiting for my husband to get there. So Jamie came in with Sandy, which... I will also mention as well, it was a real nuisance to have to do the colonoscopy when I was obviously so newly postpartum in terms of feeding. Sandy is exclusively breastfed. So just trying to plan around feeds and how we were going to manage that. Jamie was back at work, you know, trying to pump, trying to find out. Even doctors and nurses had different opinions on whether I could feed him after the colonoscopy or not, which was a bit of a um, frustration of mine. In the scheme of things, it really wasn't a big deal but it was enough that I think if I had been someone else or in a different situation I might have said I'm going to delay this and not do this for a year or until I kind of at least I'm in a bit more of a routine and I'm so glad I did because he did come around and say you have what we've found what I'm 99 potential is cancer in your rectum towards the, the top of my rectum it looks like a you know a decent sized tumor so you know I'm sorry to tell you that but but that's what we've found today so that was on a Monday afternoon I think and it was just the biggest shock that you can imagine sorry I'm gonna get emotional it's okay take your time and I'm so sorry this happened um so it was it was yeah it was just the strangest conversation to have because kind of sitting there you know with a new with a new tiny baby next to you in the pram um and my husband and they tell you that in we're just in a room with like curtains you know so there's 10 other people around who i'm sure would have heard that conversation we've also just had colonoscopy so i'm sure they're all praying <laughs> they're not going to hear the same thing next and then you just kind of walk out and walk back to your car and go home So it was just so strange and so surreal to have that happen. The conversation kind of went, you know, we found this thing. We don't know what that means at the moment. So what you need to do is first thing tomorrow, go and have a CT scan to find out 
basically if the cancer is only in your bowel or if it's in your body in other places and you know then then once we have more information then we figure out what to do so that first night was probably the worst night I think I can never imagine um and I I never wish that on anyone yeah I just remember lying there all night thinking like I'm gonna leave these two tiny boys and my husband will have to look after them and you know who will they be without a mother and all of this awful awful stuff sorry no it's okay take your time (laughs) definitely still processing this it's Um, big yeah uh, so that was, yeah, that was a truly horrendous night. Um, and then I think probably the next lowest point was having to go and get the CT scan the next day, which is just a weird experience that I, you know, hope most people never have to do, but they put a dye into your body and then you sit inside that, you know, one of those huge machines that lies there and is clicking over you and I could just see my body, like an image of my body on the the screen next to me. And I just kept thinking, I wonder if that assistant who's standing there can see if the cancer's like everywhere, like, is it completely through my body? And I kept having all these flashbacks to all these things. Like I kept thinking, was this why I was so sick in the pregnancy? Is this why I had that vertigo at the end? Like, is it just because my body's failing? And then to have to wait another kind of 24 hours before you get the results from that. CT scan is just horrendous. So we had this other awful, awful night, which I think is hard. You know, it would be an awful night regardless, but having a tiny baby as well. So you're just physically broken, but you can't even relax because you, you know, got to feed every two hours or whatever yeah. it is. And like you said, those thoughts, like every time you pick up your baby, yeah, it's like- I just kept looking at him thinking you're so precious and perfect and what's going to happen to you. And yeah, it, it was just so surreal at the same time. Like I just kept being outside of my body thinking this isn't something that happens to me. Like mm-hmm. I'm just a healthy, well person. These things don't happen to me. So to then find out the next day, so the day after the CT scan, the doctor called at seven o'clock in the morning, which of course, when you have a toddler is like prime <laughs> difficult time in the morning. Anyway, we were trying to like get ready to get out of the house and I missed the phone call and he left a voicemail. So I was like seeing that it was him that called frantically trying to listen to this voicemail in the car. And we were driving to daycare, I think. And on the voicemail, he said, I've got good news. And we, my husband and I are looking at each other saying he couldn't possibly say that unless it was really good news. Like, could he? Like, he couldn't leave a voicemail like that, you know, and trying to convince each other that this is a good thing. And then, of course, I'm trying to call him back, but it's before hours, so it just mm. keeps going straight to the, the Oh, my gosh. Voicemail. Sorry. Um, <laughs> it just felt like one of those Not okay. bizarre things. Um and eventually we ended up talking to him and the amazing news was that it hadn't spread anywhere and it was just in my bowel at that stage and that meant that we'd be able to have an operation and then remove it and then after the operation we would be able to assess what needed to happen in terms of further treatment like chemo from there. So that was the first like amazing news and it, it is such a weird thing to go from 
thinking like, oh my God, is this cancer everywhere in my body? And I, am I going to be told I've got, you know, months left to live or, or whatever to feeling like, okay, well, at least if it's an operation, that's something that we can do. And let's just get to that point. And it's amazing how your perspective immediately shifts from thinking, you know, you'd think beforehand any kind of cancer news is the worst news in the world. But then to hear that it's only in one spot and that you can have an operation made me think, well, I can do anything. Like, this is amazing. You know, they're not telling me that I'm leaving my two children. Yeah. And I guess by then you've had 48 hours of the worst, worst thoughts of your life sitting there running through your brain. And it's even when you said on, he said, it's just in, Mm. in one spot. I was like, well, just that perspective shift is so huge. And it is, it sounds like unless you've gone through it, you can't imagine being like, oh, it's just in my bowel or, you know, wild. It was, it was absolutely just the strangest experience. So from there, sorry, it's such a long story. No, do not apologize. Take your time. Um, we met with a colorectal surgeon, um, who said, yes, you know, we've got to get this out as soon as possible. So I think, oh, about 10 days later, I went in to have surgery, which having just had, you know, a baby and having had a a previous vaginal birth and episiotomy and I was so blase about having an operation. I just really thought that it would be not a big deal, <laughs> which is probably me a little bit. I think I'm probably like eternally optimistic about those kinds of things and think I'm fit and healthy and well. And, and most people who are having um, this kind of surgery tend to be older and in less good health. You know, I will bounce back from this super well. And I was just really shocked at how difficult I found having surgery. So I keep saying this to people now, but anyone who ever thinks, and I don't know what it's like to have a C-section, but anyone who ever thinks that having a C-section is an easy way out, I can't imagine that that is possibly the case because having this surgery was so much harder than having a baby um, in terms of the physical recovery afterwards. But yeah, so they did, I had a resection in the in my bowel and it was kind of, I think for me, quite fortunate where the tumour ended up being that it was not too low down in my rectum that that I needed to have a, a colostomy bag or any kind of bag forever, let alone even just for after the operation. I think that's quite common depending on where it is in your bowel. So for me, I was quite lucky that they were able to remove, I think they removed about 15 centimetres, which is wild to think that that can happen. And then you can just kind of go back to living your normal life. But it was, yeah, it was pretty rough. And and so I spent about a week in hospital having the surgery. It, again, I think was just probably complicated by the fact that this, I think at this point I had an eight-week-old baby um, who was exclusively breastfed and the hospital were truly amazing. They let him kind of in as a border baby so he had a little they borrowed a bassinet from the maternity section and he kind of came around with me most places unfortunately um it's probably pretty normal but I think finding out that I had the cancer and then having to do the prep for the surgery which is like another colonoscopy prep so you have to you know have a weird diet and then take all the stuff to make you completely empty for a few days really impacted my supply. So for about a week, I was really struggling to, I I was, I continued to feed him the whole time, but I 
um, sorry, we'll see. And talk about this part without getting emotional. My um, my best friend had a baby a few months older than my baby, and she pumped for me. I had another friend also donate some milk so that Sandy um was continued to be exclusively breast breastfed the whole journey. Um, wasn't all my milk, but um, was all breast milk, which was important to me I think I just felt like given everything else that was going on I just really wanted him to be um I don't know as consistent as possible so it's one of those amazing things that happen when you go through a hard time as people um, really come together and give you whatever you need and to have people turning up with (laughs) literal bags of milk was just uh, amazing um, yeah. So Sandy was, yeah, thankfully able to stay with me in the hospital um, whenever I wanted. But he also spent, I think, two nights with my mum at home and she kind of looked after him the, the first two nights after the surgery um, and would just give him a, a bottle of my milk or, or someone else's milk. Also just having the surgery, I think they recommended the first couple of feeds I needed to pump and dump the um, the milk because of what drugs they were putting into my body so that was a little bit tricky but yeah then from the third day or this I think the second day but sorry I can't even remember I was feeding him again yeah um and it was yeah I did notice it was a little bit harder on the supply and I had to kind of make sure that I was giving him as much opportunity to feed on me as I could because I think that really helped and then obviously given that I had just had bowel surgery I had to also be really careful about what I was eating and I was kind of on a liquid diet for the first few days and then um, starting to introduce some more um, solid but very low fiber foods and so that wasn't really great for the supply either I think in terms of what I'd normally be eating in that kind of postpartum period I'm always so hungry (laughs) um so yeah it was a little bit of a um a challenge to get through but we did and then I think on about day four after the surgery they came back with the pathology results of the actual tumor and we found out that it was a a low grade tumor which essentially means that it was not a, a a very aggressive type of cancer and it meant that I didn't need any further treatment. So all I needed to do was have had that surgery and then get better and then continue to have um, testing and yeah, follow up colonoscopies because obviously you kind of had an increased risk of developing cancer again, but with all of the, um, the follow-up testing and, and being on top of it, it's quite unlikely that it will happen to me again, hopefully, in the next um, few years. So it's one of those awful things that people talk about, but I think bowel cancer has pretty bad rates when you look at the number of people who die from it. But in terms of the actual cancer itself, if you can get it early enough, it's actually like a reasonably good one to get because it's it's more treatable in lots of ways. So it's an awful thing to kind of talk about and to engage with where people seem to have these like hierarchy of cancers that you want to get or that you don't want to get but it is I think that the truth of it that I feel so incredibly fortunate that I found it at the stage that I did and it was at the stage that it was so that I had this operation and now I will continue to you know look after myself and have regular 
checks and testing. But hopefully for me, you know, that's kind of the end of the story for now. Well, it is a very, very big story. And I thank you wholeheartedly for sharing with us, particularly because you've touched on something so important, which is not to ignore things that feel abnormal for you. And I can't imagine the roller coaster that the last few months, a year of your life, how old's that? Five months. Yeah, he's five, five and a half months, months now. Since he's yeah. all fresh. Mm. I can't imagine the roller coaster as you were speaking just thinking about how our bodies and brains are geared towards our babies at that time of postpartum. It's not surprising to me at all that your mind was on, how's my baby going to get fed? Like who's, Mm. you know, looking after him and while also having to really, really prioritize yourself Mm. and do what needed to happen. So I just think that you are one of the most resilient amazing mothers that I've ever had the pleasure of interacting with and you should be so so proud and um Henry and Sandy are in incredible hands well thank you it's it is such a pleasure to share the story I think I'm someone who's like tends to be an oversharer at the best of times but it's something that now I feel is so important to say because of that like it really my symptoms really weren't severe and it, it was enough I'm, I'm so grateful I, I honestly feel like there was this something inside me that made me know that it was there was something that needed to be looked at and I keep saying that Sandy was kind of my angel because I, I think him coming in the way that he did I think I was just a little bit more in tune with myself and I, I was having this like I also wanted to say I had the most blissful first kind of six weeks of postpartum so I say that for kind of two reasons I think for anyone who ever has a a hard time with one child like I did it it is actually possible to really enjoy it the second time even if you know you even if you've had postnatal depression it doesn't mean that you will necessarily have it again or that you can't enjoy the moments but also because it wasn't yeah it was enough that it made me kind of do something about it and I really that's probably really my message most of the time is that you know in in all of my challenging experiences in the last few years it was actually when I reached out to someone and and asked for a bit of help that good things came of that and we shouldn't be afraid to kind of ask for that assistance or help whenever we need it even if you think you're you know being a bit silly or precious um, I think most of the time you'll be so glad that you did it's just I I just now couldn't be more grateful for my life and my boys and my family my husband and my friends and all of these things that it's really given me a new perspective on life and this stage of parenthood Anyone who knows me will know that I constantly complain about how hard it is to have a toddler. I love um, your updates. I think they're really funny. <laughs> they make me well, feel very seen. <laughs> Henry is, I think he's always going to be my um, my spirited child, I call him. He's got um, quirky energy. I love it. He's always got like yes. some fun sunnies on. Or, yeah, we cute. call him his, his main character energy and I think my Sandy man angel is, is going to be the, the background character around Henry. but. Um, just the sweetest soul and uh, I just yeah I'm so grateful for everything that's happened to me and it it probably sounds weird to say that but I I don't think I could be in a more positive 
mindset and headspace now because of some of the challenges that I've had. And it doesn't mean that I don't have times where things aren't really hard, you know, particularly with the toddler, but it means that, I, yeah, I just have a, a newfound appreciation for the, the small things and the, um, the simple things in life when you have a night like that first night, I think you would do anything to, um, to just have one more day with a toddler giving you tantrums and attitude. And it, it, it really does make you appreciate everything. Yeah. It's a beautiful, beautiful message to end on. I just want to say another heartfelt thank you for sharing your story and sitting down with me this morning. I'm so grateful and yeah, I'm just in awe of you. So thank you. Please keep doing what you're doing because you've you know, you've helped me many times in the last few years and you'll continue helping many other women and families. Thank you. If you're hearing this message, then you've listened all the way to the end and maybe you're keen for more. If that's the case, jump over to my website to learn about how I can support you in pregnancy. It's www.birthwithbeth.com.au or check out my Instagram for heaps more educational content. Thank you for being here and I'll see you back here very soon.